Say hello and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I will be uh, flying solo today. Um, uh, Regan has just a mountain of stuff uh, piled on top of her. And you know what? <laughs> I, uh, believe it or not, I've got plenty to say. <laughs> uh, let me start off by saying uh, we are listener-supported radio. And if you're listening to us in Washington, D.C. or in New York, we, uh, we need your support. So I'm going to ask you, if you're listening on uh, WPFW, to go to your pledge line. Go to 202-588-9739 or go online to WPFWFM.org and make a contribution to WPFW. If you're listening in New York on WBAI, then I'm asking you to go to its pledge line, which is 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org and make a contribution that way. Hey, if you do it in the name of this radio show, I would be greatly appreciative. Um, and But the big thing is to support the radio station. L- look, we need your support for these great radio stations, stations that, are that again, are committed to providing a space for voices like mine and Regan's. Like I said, Regan is not with us today, um, but I've got some, I've got a, I got a bunch to talk about. Before I get into the meat of what I want to talk about, I do want to say, um, look, I am very active on social media. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, I have a Facebook group page associated with Resistance Radio. I have a Facebook group page associated with my uh, podcast, which is Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Um, and look, I've been busy <laughs> with things for many years. Uh, it just so happens that this week um, on my memories on Facebook, uh, the video popped up of me stopping the police from breaking up what we were calling flash mob round dances. This was in the the height, I would say, of the Idle No More movement when many Native people were were going, essentially, <laughs> we, we were you know, go, you know going into shopping malls, any large public spaces, and we were simply doing a round dance. And by doing so, we were putting on display that we are here, that we aren't idle anymore, that we that we are going to be seen and we are going to make our issues known now these were were more than just peaceful demonstrations they were just simply a dance oftentimes didn't last more than five or ten minutes and look so so me and a buddy of mine we were on our way to another event had which was really about celebrating a friend of ours who had uh, a bunch of charges dropped on him for an anti-war protest i believe in in the city of buffalo and on our way, we said, hey, you know, look, they're going to do a flash mob round dance at the Galleria Mall, which is just outside of Buffalo in a, a suburb called Cheektowaga. So we, we're just going to go and we're going to support and, you know, let, you know, let our bodies be just two more numbers in, in the group. And so when we got there, we saw a mall cop that was just about losing his mind <laughs> walking around. And you could tell that he was, you know, he was antsy. He wanted to do something. He wanted to stop us. He didn't like the idea. Now, Cheektowaga is a really, really white area of uh, of, of New York, uh, or of Buffalo, I'm sorry. And um, so the idea that all these Native people were there in their, their gallery of mall uh, was particularly offensive to this, this mall cop. And he, so he called the, the, the Cheektowaga police. And so as, as this round dance was growing. And, and I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people started participating. I mean, it was a circle. When you see the video, and you can, by the way, find the video on my Facebook uh, page. If you go to uh, Let's Talk Native, you can find the video. It's, it's, it's a bit grainy, but you, you'll see what's going on. Um, but, but a huge round dance uh, with, a, with a small circle of people in the middle who were, who were basically doing the drumming and, and doing the singing. And as we were witnessing uh, police begin to build up, uh, my, my friend and I, Matt, we decided we were going to do something to, to at least try to keep them from, from breaking up what we were doing. So when the cops came in, um, I actually got into a little bit of a physical confrontation with, with their lead officer, I guess, or officer in charge. And, but I talked him down and I basically talked him in to just being patient and that if he just let this song play out, this dance play out, that we'd be out of their hair. This was just a, a bit of a demonstration. It wasn't anything that that needed a police action by any means. But um, but it was just interesting that the police were called, and it turns out they had a whole line of cop cars outside. When uh, when Matt and I left, we 
we saw that they were really prepared to to grab a bunch of people, and and they wanted to charge us with trespass and violating something. I don't know what singing and dancing in a mall, what that violates exactly. It's funny because I saw them do Christmas carols in that mall without permission. But apparently you can sing Christmas carols and line yourself up and down the stairs and the balconies and everything else, and that's okay. But don't let Native people come in there and do a round dance. But anyway, that video pops up every year. I always forget that it's what date it is. I think it's like January 11th is when it happened, nine years ago. And uh, But you know, every time I see it, it, I'm intrigued. Because what what I was able to demonstrate in that moment was, yes, you can resist, but you have to temper that resistance Somewhat. I mean, I, you not, can't go in there throwing punches at police officers and get away with it. Not to mention, I think this was on a Friday. One of the things that my wife complained to me the most about, she was, how could you get yourself in a conflict with a cop on a Friday? You know what that means. You sit your butt in jail until Monday. And I said, yeah, you, you, got, you got a point there. But yeah, she was, she was not happy. But <laughs> it, it worked out all right. I was able to, to talk this police officer and, you know, and essentially all of them, uh, as it turned out, into just you know, calming down, being patient. And, uh, and so it's like my buddy and I were telling him, you're going to have spend more time doing paperwork on this thing than this round dance is going to last. So we made our statement. In fact, I would say that the police helped us make a statement because just that, even that level of aggression. And then it was aggressive. I mean, I, gotta, I have to admit, I didn't realize until afterwards when I saw the video how physical it had actually gotten. The one thing I do remember was, at one point, the, the police officer started reaching down for his pepper spray. And I said, look, you don't want to do that. There's, there's like 500, 800 people here. And uh, so anyway, it, it's an anniversary of that this week. So uh, it's one of those, those good moments where we stood up. And, and I got to tell you, if you search Idle No More round dances, flash mob round dances, you're going to see plenty of places where the police were not talked, uh, talked down where they were very aggressive, dragging people out. I mean, our guys did this at the, in the Mall of America, in Minneapolis, St. Paul. I mean, all over the place, you know, in, on the Canadian side and, and the U.S. side. So it was, a, it was kind of a big deal for a while. And this was one of several that I had participated in. Um, and, and again, it was, uh, it was interesting. I didn't sign up to be the one person or the, among the few people who were going to keep the, the police officers at bay, but, uh, but it was successful. And I will say that... The, I think the most pleasing thing about it was how many people came up to me afterwards and said, um, not only that they were glad that I did it, but um, that I proved, I, I demonstrated to them that with with the right temperament, you can even be somewhat physical and uh, and 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 pro provide some physical resistance. So, anyway, that was nine years ago. Look for the video; it's on Facebook. Um, you can actually find it on some videos on YouTube to. Uh, and I think it says something along the line. I think the title is something along the lines like um, uh, Round Dance, Galleria Round Dance, you know, attacked by Chichawaga police or something like that. It wasn't really that much of an attack, but, but that's how it's listed. But anyway, so there's that. All right. The big news. The big news is, and I just learned this um, last night. So this is, you know, uh, there was some sort of video statement that was put out by the Seneca Nation. And um, the, the Seneca Nation has basically caved in to New York State's pressure on fleecing them for hundreds of millions of dollars. And this is, involves the Seneca Nation gaming. And, and I've done shows on this before. So for those who, who are familiar with me talking about the subject, um, you're going to hear some stuff that I've talked about before. And if you've never heard it before, well, here's the deal. <sighs> A federal law was passed called the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act that, that provided a, a means for Native people to do Class 3 gaming, which is casino gaming. It's the, you know, it's the gaming you know, with, you know, with not just slot machines, but with table games and, and, and all of it. Um, and a means for them to do it under a federal statute. Now, to be clear, we didn't need this. The, the Supreme Court had already ruled um, you know, a, a year prior to this that Native people could do gaming. I mean, if states do gaming, Native people can do gaming. I wasn't even in love with, with that kind of you know, uh, restriction that we could only do it if, if the states were doing it. But, but anyway, the, the, the Supreme Court ruled on this in a California case called Cabazon. 
Basically, this is when uh, the state of California was trying to shut down a high-stakes bingo operation. This, this is one of these bingo games where you can win, you know, thousands, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, not just a thousand dollars. And so the Supreme Court had ruled in favor of the Cabazon and and basically um, established that the courts had recognized and that the United States had to recognize that we had the right to do gaming. Now, keep in mind, we were already doing gaming. We were doing gaming in big ways, not just in, uh, you know, bingo halls, but we were already venturing into casino gaming. But there was a lot of questions by some about whether we had the legal right to do it. And the biggest problem was how did we secure vendors for gaming that the states were oftentimes opposed to and the federal government was seemed somewhat at least indifferent about? So what IGRA, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, did was it established a legal framework that for us as Native people really gave us better opportunity to, to have contracts with, with non-Native vendors. We had the right to do gaming. And, and that was already established. But it's a little hard to do gaming if you can't secure financing, if you can't get equipment, you can't, you know, you can't contract with any of the, you know, the, the gaming industry uh, experts and, and that kind of stuff. So I'm not a, a fan of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, but I do understand why um, it turned into a big deal for, for Native territories. Look, and to be clear, some of the, the process for gaining federal recognition really got juiced up when uh, IGRA was passed. There were some places that sought their gaming reg recognition specifically, or their, their BIA recognition specifically so they could do gaming. And the idea of, of not only reclaiming lost lands, but gaining that federal recognition and gaming, those things all got connected, and they still remain connected. Even if it wasn't our intent, it became a driver because, frankly, you know, financial stresses and everything else. So. What's included in this idea of, of this federal statute was that native um, na nations would would enter into a gaming compact with the states that they are you know situated in or uh, that surround them I guess. So in the in the case of the Seneca Nation, the Seneca Nation would would enter into a co gaming compact with New York State. Now a lot of this has to do with the the state and, and the nation coming into agreement on on issues about the kinds of gaming, how much gaming space they would have, and you know, and that kind of stuff. There is nothing in the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act that allows the state to tax or grab revenue from native gaming, unless there is something that the state gives them, uh, a concession that they make to them, that could have a value in, in the gaming, uh, in, in this gaming operation, that by getting something from the state, the the nation, Seneca Nation in this case, would share some of its revenue with the state. And so it was called, you know, a, a revenue sharing uh, clause that could be entered into. Now, a gaming compact does not require a revenue sharing clause. There is absolutely no requirement. There's no compulsory reason for a nation to enter into a, a gaming revenue clause, re revenue sharing clause. One of the main reasons they do get entered into is if the state will provide something of, of significant value. And, and usually that thing is some sort of exclusivity. And that's what we've seen in, in Connecticut with uh, the, the Pequots and the, um, um, uh, the Mohegans. They, they have an exclusivity with the, the state of Connecticut. The state of Connecticut will not do gaming, will not do casinos uh, directly competing against the, 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 the native casinos there. Well, New York State didn't offer a statewide exclusivity, but they said, well, we won't do casino gaming in Western New York, and we're going to ask you to pay us um, a percentage of your, what they call the net slot drop, the, the, net, the amount of money that a slot machine takes in minus its payout, a percentage of that. And that percentage slid. It slid from 18, then to 22, and then ultimately to 25% for this this first 15-year um, uh, term of, of the gaming compact. There's no mention in the compact of any payments beyond that 15 years, which becomes a, a point of contention. So that gaming compact, the first term, expired in 2016. And there was some tensions over that revenue sharing. And part of the tensions came from the fact that New York State didn't provide an exclusivity. They, in fact, they, they competed directly against the Seneca Nation by opening up 
several racetracks within the so-called exclusivity zone that competed directly against them. You know, if you're if you're familiar with some of the the uh, gaming operations around the New York City area, you know what I'm talking about here. These are where they took racetracks and they used the fact that racetracks were a gaming site um, to expand it into slot parlors. And in fact, they're called casinos. Well, and so the, the Seneca Nation said, look, you weren't supposed to compete in, uh, against this directly. And they said, oh no, we're not competing against directly. These aren't real casinos. These are um, um, electronic gaming facilities. And so they tried to argue that the slot machines that they were employing in these, uh, in these, uh, at these racetrack facilities, which were not just racetrack, these were built out to be these, these casinos, that they weren't real slot machines. They were uh, uh, what they call video lottery terminals. They were, they, were a different, they were a class two version of, of slot machines. I mean, look, if you were a player and you walked into these places, it's a slot machine. It looks just like the slot machines that the Seneca Nation had. And it clearly was taking market share from the Senecas. So this dispute raged on for a, year, a few years. The, the Senecas stopped paying. They worked out an agreement and the Senecas um, you know, kept 200,000, I'm sorry, $200 million of the, um, of the money that uh, would have been paid up to them. And then the Senecas remained silent and continued to, uh, to make the, these payments throughout the rest of that term. And the reason they did is because in 2016, when this thing expired, as far as the Senecas were concerned, there was no more gaming re revenue sharing in, uh, in the, what would be the, the 2017 to, to what term that we're in now, from 2017 to, to 2023. And of course, the state cried foul. They said, wait, you gotta, you got to keep paying us. And the Seneca said, no, there's nothing in the, there's no language in the, in the compact that says that. The state says, no, but it's implied. And wait, 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 wait. There's no such thing as implied payments in a contract. There's a thing called the Four Corners Doctrine of, um, of, of a contract. If it ain't in the four corners of the paper, then it ain't there. But the state argued. So they took the Seneca Nation into what was considered binding arbitration, which is the, the agreed upon message to, to resolve this conflict. And so three judges, one who happened to be native and two that were white, they, uh, they split on, the, um, on their ruling. And, they, and the two white guys ruled in favor of the state and said, no, you got to keep paying. They <clears throat> said, so wait a minute. There's, no there's nothing in the compact that says, yeah, but we're saying you have to. So you're rewriting the compact? You are saying that even though we didn't agree to pay in this term of the compact, that, you, that we have to pay? So that's where, where I got left. And um, as it stood as of yesterday, there was close to half a billion dollars that the state um, claims the, the Santa Canadian owed them. It would have been a lot more had COVID not struck, by the way. It would have been significantly more than that. But COVID, you know, killed, you know, killed a lot of things, including gaming revenue. But, it's, you know, it's between $450 and, and uh, $500 million that the state was arguing that they... Now, so the Seneca Nation still wasn't paying, even though the, the, the arbitration ruling came against them, even though a, a, a court had dismissed their, their argument against it and that kind of thing. But they were still bound in litigation. But here was the kicker. Anti-Deb. Anti-Deb Halland uh, became the Interior Secretary. So why is that important? Well, it's because the Interior Department oversees the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. And... And here's the thing. There are three major questions that the Interior Department, and I'm not just blaming Deb Hallen here. I'm, I'm talking about them. This, this thing's existed for 30 years. And there's three questions that have never been answered. One is, can a state shut down a native gaming operation simply by either walking away from a compact, a gaming compact, or by not renewing one? Can they do that? Is, is that the way the law is written? And is that the way the Interior Department interprets it? And the likelihood is no, but see, nobody will say it. And the implication is that the state is going to squeeze the Seneca Nation by either claiming that the, the compact has been violated or not renewing a compact. And keep in mind that that compact has to be renewed at the end of 2023. So it's, it's coming right up. The other question is um, the whole revenue sharing thing. See, the revenue sharing as it was laid out by the Interior Department, the Interior Secretary, was that the, at the time was revenue sharing could not be a tax and it could not be con you know, configured like a tax. It could not be forced upon Native people. The only way it was legitimate is if the state made a concession that was both quantifiable, 
and significant enough to, ju to, just, to justify whatever the percentage of, of payment they were getting. So it had to be quantified. I mean, in other words, you had to say that there was a way to measure what the state, so if the state says I'm giving you a, an exclusivity, well, how do you put a value on that? And does that value match? And it actually even, shouldn't even match. It should actually, that value should be less than what the, what the, the Seneca Nation was paying you. Because it should be in the Seneca's best interest to have this exclusivity. It shouldn't just be a wash. They shouldn't be saying, okay, we're going to give you 25% of our, of our slot revenue um, just because you are giving us a limited, and it's, and it's, I think limited is being gracious because they're not really given, a, given an exclusivity. Those slot parlors at three racetracks in Western New York still exist today. And since the Senecas entered into that gaming compact, the state has changed its constitution to allow class three gaming. So now there's a, a casino right on the edge of the Seneca Nation's exclusivity zone out, uh, out towards Rochester. Then New York State is in, in the gaming industry in a big way. So you could argue the state has no um, exclusivity. And, and if you think, well, yeah, but what if the, the state turned around and, and built a bunch of casinos and competed directly against them, not just the, the slot parlors? Well, well, here's the thing. If the Seneca Nation isn't paying the state, then who is going to build a casino that does have to pay the state if they've got to compete directly against somebody who's got a 25% greater operating margin. Nobody's going to do that. In fact, the casino out near Rochester, the Lago, I think it's called, it has performed so poorly since it opened that they can't even make, uh, make good on their debt service. They're only paying interest payments on, on, on the loans. That they, that they, so the gaming isn't this you know, golden goose that, uh, that is recession-proof. It isn't. It, it, you can oversaturate a market. So there's no way that the that New York State was ever going to, if the, if the Senecas weren't paying the state anything, there's no way that anybody, there's no way that a lender or you know any kind of financial institution would invest in a casino that has to operate at a 25% you know, weaker operating margin. So anyway, that without getting too buried in the weeds on that. Um, but, but again, if you were to try to put a value on what the state claims they're giving the Seneca Nation, because here's the kicker. The Seneca Nation gave them a billion dollars. They gave them a billion dollars during that first um, term of their, you know, of their gaming compact. And since 2016, since, since this term, it's a half a billion dollars that the state is claiming that they're, that they're owed. Now, in the announcement that the Seneca Nation made, and look, I am, you know, I'm embarrassed, put it this way. I, you know, I'm not angry. I'm just embarrassed for the Seneca Nation because I know what the Seneca, the Seneca people feel, how they feel about that. And I know how some of the people who, look, most of the counselors supported this, this move, the, the president, the, you know, the executives, they all, and, and you bet their lawyers approved it because that's what's driven, driving most of this. So when the Seneca Nation agreed they will make their, their big lump sum payment and they will continue to pay. And then they tried to say, but we're going to save $40 million. You know what the $40 million is they're going to save? Is the, is the penalty that the state was going to charge them for, for not paying them uh, you know, all along. So the good, gracious state said, okay, we're gonna, we won't charge you the $40 million interest if you, if you pay the half a billion dollars that we really want. <clears throat> but here's the kicker, or another kicker, I should say. Kathy Hochul is the governor of uh, New York. Now, most of this battle has transpired during the Cuomo administration. And, and Cuomo was a terrible brute over this thing. I mean, some of the racist comments he, he, he offered up made it sound like, you know, Seneca's, you, you, you just can't trust, you know, Seneca's, they, they, they always break agreements. And, you know, imagine a white guy <clears throat> telling the media that Native people break the agreements that we're the ones that break the agreements? Yeah, that, that was Cuomo. But Kathy Hochul is, was Cuomo's administration, so let's not let her... I, I, it always bothers me that, that somehow she has been isolated from all of the, the negativity associated with Cuomo when she was right there. I mean, look, the reason she's the governor is because of Cuomo. She, 
he propped her up as lieutenant governor, and uh, and of course his resignation resignation put her in the in the governor's mansion. But here's the other thing that's interesting: Kathy Hochul's husband is in the gaming industry. He is the he's the the I don't know what title he actually has, but he runs Delaware North, which is a hospitality company. This is a company that's had New York State contracts for years and years on everything from the rest areas on the on the interstates on the throughways. Um, uh, They've they've run the parking lots at state parks. You know they they they've always been the the company, for profit company, that has had all of these state contracts and everything from state parks to you know to the throughway. And they run some of these slot parlors at these racetracks. Arguably, Delaware North is the Seneca Nation's biggest competition. So the husband of the governor. It's got to be happy as hell because you know what? Everybody took a hit during COVID, but some of the like these these slot parlors that run these racetracks, they took a pretty good hit too. In fact, they've been trying to negotiate down not only the slot parlors uh, on these racetracks, these racetrack casinos, but even the other casinos that have been approved by New York State. Uh, they've all been trying to renegotiate how much they pay the state because they they claim they're not making enough money. I mean. <laughs> I thought Donald Trump was the only one who, who could run casinos and not make any money. But apparently there, there are plenty of others who, who can't make money either. But so Kathy Hochul, the governor of the state of New York, her husband is in the gaming industry. And, and, and it, just, it, it just drives me crazy. Look, I mentioned that there were, there were three questions. So the, the question about revenue sharing is one of them. But here's the other one that I alluded to is can a arbitration panel rewrite a compact or add language that isn't there. And that's what they did here during, during this term, I mean, which, is the, which was the extension, the, the second term of the, the written compact that the Seneca Nation has with, um, with New York State. Two judges, two white guys, <laughs> basically said, well, we're going to um, say that this compact does require that you pay. It, it doesn't say it there, but we're going to say it. So. So these two judges, and, and, and frankly, the other judge said, these guys are essentially writing the compact. They're rewriting the terms of the compact because there's no language in the written compact that the Seneca Nation agreed to that said that they would pay a percentage of their slot revenue in the years, you know, 15 through, you know, again, from, from 2017 to 2023. Now, so those three questions, you know, can a state shut a casino down if it doesn't have a compact is, is a good question. And, and, and it needs to be answered. Um, what, what are the legal limits of revenue sharing? I mean, that, it was well-defined in the beginning, but it hasn't been enforced. There has not been a single time in the 30 years of IGRA that the Interior Department has weighed in specifically to say, no, this revenue sharing agreement doesn't work, or this one does. And these are issues that have been plaguing native casinos all over the country, Oklahoma, New Mexico. Yeah, did I say New Mexico? Hmm. Now, who was from New Mexico? Deb Haaland is from New Mexico. And you know what she did there? She was involved in gaming. So when Deb Haaland, the interior secretary, becomes, or who's native, is sitting there at the, at the head of the interior, you would expect, well, now we can finally get some of these questions, these three questions about can arbitration rewrite a compact without, by the way, and the biggest question is, can they rewrite a compact without the uh, interior Department approving the changes. Because it's one thing for one side to say, well, I don't interpret it that way. But at the end of the day, if you're going to say, well, this is the interpretation, and one side says, I don't agree, and the other side says, well, I do, then how does the Interior Department uh, approve of that? And, and how have they done it so far? They haven't. They just punt. They don't even address the issue. So now there's a Native person at, at the head of the, of the Interior Department. Now, look, I've been as as critical of Deb Haaland as anybody. And this is one of the main issues that, I, that I'm critical of her over. This was easy. This wasn't rewriting law. This wasn't establishing something new. This was taking a law that's 30 freaking years old and saying, no, you can't force revenue sharing on Native people. No, the state, you can't deny renewing a compact because you aren't getting revenue sharing because that's what this is. This is it's essentially extortion. When a state says, you don't want to do revenue sharing? Fine. We're not going to enter a new compact. Well, does that mean that's how the state can force you into revenue sharing? 
It's a simple question, Deb. Answer the goddamn thing. But she hasn't. So when the Seneca Nation caved last night, part of the reason she caved, the, the, part of the reason the Seneca Nation caved is because Deb Haaland won't do her goddamn job. In fact, nobody before her has done her goddamn job. So here we have it. Here we have the Seneca Nation that is being fleeced for a half a billion dollars today and has to keep paying throughout, uh, through 2023, 25% of the net slot drop. And I don't know what that ends up being. I mean, by, most people thought that would be a billion dollars during this 2017 to 2023. It isn't going to be that high because of the hit that all gaming, including Seneca Nation gaming, took because of COVID. So it'll be something less than that. But you know what? Just because it's a lower number doesn't mean it didn't hurt the Seneca Nation. They, they run their entire nation off of that gaming revenue. I mean, when people say, well, the Senecas, they don't pay taxes on their gaming revenue. All of the revenue is essentially a tax. It goes into funding the government, all the government services. So, I mean, this, this, this is something that Deb Haaland could have solved. She could have answered the, the specific question because she knows what revenue sharing fights are over because she had one in New Mexico. But she, again, she refuses to do her job. So the Seneca Nation hung out there. Look, they've been fighting. One of the reasons the Seneca Nation fought this for as long as they fought it is because they were waiting on her. And she wouldn't budge. She wouldn't move. I mean, there was some hint that she might do something or that something might happen. But so this, that's why the Seneca Nation caved in on this thing. And they did cave in. And, you know, and, and like, like I said, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed the Seneca Nation has not stayed the course on this thing and maintained resistance against the state. Because here's the other thing. What's going to happen in 2023? I mean, the Seneca Nation is being advised by some of their legal counsel to enter into a perpetual compact that'll have them paying forever. Now, I don't know what that number is going to be. Is it going to be 25%? I certainly hope not. But it shouldn't be anything because the state isn't providing anything of value of substantial and quantifiable value to the Seneca Nation. They're not giving them any, any exclusivity. They're competing directly against them, both within the exclusivity zone, all of these counties, 15 counties in western New York, and by putting a casino right on the edge. I mean, uh, you know, out near Rochester. There's nothing here that, that gives the Seneca Nation something that is worth a billion freaking dollars over the term of a, uh, of a compact. I mean, this, this is theft. It's extortion. And, and it, it really is extortion because if the state is saying, we won't renew a compact if you don't, and even if they're not saying it, if they're implying it, because let's face it, nobody's going to come right out and say it. But there's no question. Look, when the Seneca Nation withheld payments in that first term of the compact because of, of these slot parlors that opened up, one of the reasons they settled instead of, instead of taking this in, into arbitration the way they should have, and, and, and saying, look, we want to sever the revenue sharing agreement completely. Instead of severing it, they paid. And they paid because they were afraid the state would not renew a compact and that they would be left with what? Buildings they can't do gaming in? That goes to my first question. Was the law written so the states could extort money or whatever they want, extort you know, some sort of treatment in the gaming compact? Is that what these were for? And no, and no, it wasn't. And you know what? Everybody knows it wasn't. But this has been the history that we've all experienced at, in the, at the hands of both the federal government and state government. You know, I, I mentioned this before, but there's a reason the state was able to run, a, run the, the New York State Thruway and I know most of you listening are thinking about the, the stretch uh, up from New York, but the New York State Thruway runs all the way out past Buffalo to, you know, to the uh, Pennsylvania start, uh, state line. And the reason it was able to run it through Seneca territory and pay them barely anything, and when I say barely anything, like 70, I, I, it, was, it, it, was, it was, I don't even know what it was. It was like $70,000, something pitiful anyway. And, and of course, they've generated revenue for decades off of this Thruway. And then they gain this unfettered access through the, with this throughway and with rail, by the way, that cuts through the Seneca territory. And the Seneca Nation gets nothing for it. They don't, they don't get any revenue, even though the state was get, collecting revenue. 
They don't get any say on what hazardous materials go through. Now, why would the Senecas allow that? Well, at the time, there was this thing called termination that was happening, where the federal government was essentially saying, we're not going to recognize that you exist anymore. There was a genuine concern that the, that the state would just have its way completely with the Senecas. So that's why they took $70,000 for the throughway to go through their land. This is the asymmetric relationship that's always existed between the Seneca Nation and, um, and New York State, and frankly, all Native peoples. And it continues. Now, look, the Seneca Nation caving is a big deal because it affects not only them, it affects other Native um, gaming operations in the state and future gaming operations in the state. Look, there's, there's some there's a gaming that's going to happen in, uh, in Long Island. And you know what? They're going to get screwed, too. Why? Because the Seneca Nation had already lowered the bar on gaming with their 25% revenue sharing in the first place. And now they continue to lower the bar by caving in instead of standing up to the state. But it's not even just here. It's Oklahoma, it's New Mexico, it's California. There's a whole bunch of other places where the states are trying to squeeze native territories for more and more gaming revenue. When they have no right to any of that gaming revenue, especially if they can't quantifiably demonstrate that they've made some valuable concession that is worth getting some revenue sharing for in the first place. So, look, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed of what the leadership of the Seneca Nation has done here. I don't know where this is going to lead the Seneca people. Look, Seneca people fight, man. <laughs> we fought, we've seen the Seneca Nation be the, you know, the front lines on, on battles with the state over tobacco revenue, fuel revenue, all kinds of things. I don't know how if the Seneca people will take this lying down. They may. They may just say, you know, well, look, we it's the cost of doing business. And I I don't know. But you know, for all the native people who want to talk about shutting down pipelines, it's really time that somebody think about the money pipeline that continues to suck revenue, gaming revenue and other revenues, by the way, out of native territories. Like I said, there's money being paid every single day for for vehicular traffic going through Seneca territory. And Seneca Nation doesn't get a dime. And in fact, the Seneca Nation doesn't even get a pass, or, and I mean the Seneca people, we don't even get a pass on the thruway. We've got to pay that, to ride on that road going through, uh, through native lands. I mean, that's how crazy this thing is. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm animated today. You know, when I, when I heard the news last night, and look, I knew this was always a possibility, you know, but I've been one of the, the, the voices out there. And in fact, Seneca Nation from time to time, has appreciated my comments on this. In fact, they had a radio station for a while, and uh, they used to run some of my audio uh, as I was blasting the governor when it was Cuomo. But now they've totally caved in to Kathy Hochul and her husband. Let's be clear, Kathy Hochul and her gaming um, executive husband, that the Seneca Nation has caved into them. And they are going to enter into a compact that, again, by, by some of what I'm hearing, they're being advised to don't put yourself in a situation where you got to worry about the state ever canceling your compact or walking away. So if we, if we get the state to assign a perpetual compact and we come to terms on what we're going to pay them, they'll never be able to walk away. You know what that means? It means you can't walk away either, you morons. It means that you're going you're gonna to commit yourself to paying the state for your right to do gaming forever. Man, I'll tell you, if I was Seneca, I would... <laughs> I, I'd be right down at the, uh, at the administration building raising hell. I would, but I'm not Seneca. In fact, I may piss off a few Senecas for even saying some of what I've been saying here today. But, you know, look, this is, this is what we do, right? We, we've we've got to be on, open and honest about um, even, even when there's criticism. And there is criticism. Look, I'm, I'm, I'll be one of the first people to, to lodge criticisms at Native people who are wronging their own people or who are not fulfilling their responsibility that they have to the, to the planet, to each other, or whatever. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons, you know, I fight some of the things that I fight is not because I have a specific interest. I don't get any gaming dollars. Seneca Nation doesn't sponsor what I do here. <laughs> uh, in fact, they, you know, while they have been supportive from time to time, they've never really supported anything, you know, any of my commentaries here. And, you know, so, look, I, I have no dog in this fight. I don't, I don't benefit from the Seneca Nation gaming operations, you know, and, but, you know, I've, I, I've had family members who, who's worked there. 
And it hasn't always been a great experience for them either. <laughs> but, but regardless. All right, hey, one final thing I got to talk about. Um, and it, it gets back to, to the mascot issue a little bit. Tonight in, uh, in Cambridge, there was a school board meeting. And one of the things that's, uh, that's, although it's not on the agenda, one of the things that's anticipated is going to be talked about is whether the, the Cambridge Central School Board is going to fight the New York State Department of Education and their commissioner, Dr. Betty Rosa, over the ruling that she made in, back in early December saying this, the, that Cambridge has to retire its Indians mascot. So these fights, you know, trying to, uh, you know, appeal her ruling is the chances of winning are you know, like, you know, four or five percent of, you know, of having any success. So it's going to cost money. Cambridge has already spent, you know, 80, almost $100,000 on this mascot issue. Uh, as it stands right now, as far as the state's concerned, they can't have it. Um, but the state won't tell other places they can't have it. You know, this, they're saying other schools that have native mascots should retire them. But in Cambridge, they said, no, you must. And, and they based it part of, on the fact that there was a legal proceeding called the 310 petition where, you know, four families from Cambridge said, look, they, they retired the mascot and then flipped back over the next month, which is kind of what I want to talk about. Look, we've had a lot of success um, over the last several decades getting schools and professional teams, for that matter, to retire and to, to cease this racist practice of using native people for mascots or our images or references or whatever else. We've had pretty good success. Um, in, 20, oh, in 2001, the commissioner of education in New York, uh, Dr. Uh, Mills, had basically told states, well, you got to get rid of these things. Although he didn't tell, do it with force. He said, you need to do, do it at a time that, that a whatever time is practicable to, uh, to re remove these mascots. And many did, but others dug in. Cambridge was one of those schools that dug in. And so this, this has been going on. The trend is clear that, that schools are retiring these, but not all of them do it without a fight. And some of them do fight. Cambridge is an example. Look, they retired it, then they unretired it, and now it's, now it's a forced retirement by the state. And now they're going to see tonight if they're going to continue to fight it. But the Cambridge isn't the only one. Uh, uh, Killingly, uh, Connecticut. They retired their native mascot, and then, you know, they elected a few board members and, and then and tried to, and, and reversed it. Uh, Rutland, Rutland, Vermont just did it a couple of days ago. Um, uh, Belafonte, uh, uh, Pennsylvania, another school that retired it and, and they ran a few board members. Because this has been the trend, right? And, and, and kind of what I want to talk about here. One of the big pushes from the right is to try to build more of a grassroots um, right-wing um, control in these small towns. So it isn't just running for, for political office. It's running for boards. And, and boards don't have, most board elections don't have party affiliation. It's just people in the town that, that, that are, most of the time you would expect somebody who's going to run for a school board that they have some interest in education. But that hasn't been the trend. The trend lately is to use things like critical race theory, masking children, vaccinations, and mascots. They've been using some of these other issues as conservative talking points to run people who are, who are only going to run on one or several of these specific, specific issues that have nothing to do with education. So you're not going to see board members who have... <laughs> you know, degrees or, or, or PhDs or, you know, or, you know, have any interest in education, a role in education anyplace else. You're going to see people who are saying, hell no, we love our Indian mascot. And that, that guy gets elected. That's the guy that gets elected. Or no, these masks are suffocating our children, so I'm going to run on an anti-mask platform. And that's the guy who gets elected. Because that's the guy who's also going to get you know, uh, uh, some, some Trump support. He's going to get some right-wing support. So one of the trends that we're seeing in many of these small rural communities is this really tough, big effort to try to uh, push these conservatives who are not necessarily equipped to do any kind of job on a school board, but push these conservatives onto these school boards. And it's a way to build 
a bit more of a platform of, uh, you know, of right-wing conservatism. The mascot issue, which by no means should be a political issue. It, it has nothing to do with politics. It, 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 it's really quite simple. It's simple. Is it all right to mock a, a, a people and, and use them for, for dehumanize Native people and use them for mascots? We know that blackface is wrong, but how do we not know that redface is wrong? How do we not know that white people wearing headdresses is inappropriate? We know that blackface is inappropriate, but we don't know that redface isn't? Yes, we do. We know. You know. Look, if you're a town full of white people, and you, are, and you are fighting to the bitter end so you can still play Indian in your 40s, 50s, and 60s? Shame on you. Aren't you embarrassed? I mean, look, I get it. You probably peaked in high school, and, you're, and your life has been crap ever since. But that's no reason to hang on to this. Make your school better for your kids or your grandkids. So you, as, I, as I've seen what some of these schools have done. Now, look, some have tried to do it. In fact, you know, you know, a couple of things that made it in the news. There was a um, Glastonbury, Connecticut. They were called the Tomahawks. In fact, one of the school board members called me up, and we, and we talked at length. I explained why the imagery is inappropriate and that it isn't just a, uh, an axe. It is, it is a war club, and you can't envision a tomahawk without envisioning who's wielding it. So it's still painting Native people as these warlike creatures um, who who crack skulls with, with a tomahawk. And make no mistake about it, the tomahawk chop at Kansas City football games and at Atlanta baseball games, that whole idea of emulating the tomahawk, that's, that is symbolizing smashing somebody's head with a tomahawk. That's what you're doing there. Don't, let's not pretend it's something else. That's what it is. It isn't tomahawk chopping wood. That's not what these, that's not what these tools were for, okay? But some of these schools, like, like Lassenbury, they voted to retire it, and then um, you know, an outpouring or backlash of, uh, of resident reaction. Um, they sign a petition, and they show up at a meeting. And in fact, it was just last month that w at, at this meeting, this public meeting in Glastonbury, Connecticut, that one of these pro-mascot guys sucker punched one of the board members. Punched him in the face, knocked him right down to the ground. And of course, they picked him up and dusted him off. <laughs> I don't even think he probably wasn't even charged. I mean, that's that's just it. You know, every, every, people get away with this stuff, and and it turns out that the the school board still voted to keep the the tomahawks um, retired. So they, in, in spite of even the the physical assault associated with trying to fight for this thing, they weren't successful. There's a uh, there's a town in uh, Mason City, Iowa, Iowa now, and they've been calling themselves the Mason City Mohawk. That got retired. And all hell started breaking loose in, uh, in Mason City. They were you know, arguing, no, we're the Mohawks. No, you're not. You're not. <laughs> you're not Mohawks in Mason City, Iowa. And, and you know, after you know, a, a, a lot of you know, heated discussions and, again, petitions and newspapers and uh, radio and all kinds of, you know, a big push to try to bring their, their Mohawk um, mascot back, they, uh, the board voted again to, to keep it retired. So some of these efforts to reverse these retirement resolutions have failed, but not all of them have. So what, is, what happens when they, do, when, when they don't fail, when, when Rutland reverses or when uh, Belafonte, Pennsylvania reverses? Well, it just means the fight continues. It, these things only end one way, and that's with white people not being allowed to play Indian at school functions. Look. This isn't a First Amendment thing. White people, you can call yourselves whatever you want to call yourselves. And you can pretty much call yourselves whatever you want to call yourselves anywhere you want. But you cannot use taxpayer money that goes into public schools to have the school endorse this mockery. You can mock Native people, and, and there's probably nothing that, that any of us can do to stop. You can still wear blackface. You will be you know, criticize publicly if you do it. There's no law against blackface, I don't think. But we just know that it's not proper. So you can continue to do that kind of stuff. But you know what? You schools, Rutland, Vermont, shame on you. And I listened to some of the, the, the dialogue that came out of some of your board members. 
And, and when I hear a white person says, well, anybody gets to decide what they want to be offended over and what not to be defended, offended over. No, that's not true. Many of us don't get to decide. If you're mocking our culture, well, I get to decide that it's not offensive? No, I can look the other way. And you know what? We've looked the other way for decades. While our children be, were being hauled off to residential schools, having their hair chopped off, their, their language stripped from them, every bit of their culture taken from them, so their identity would be killed, kill the Indian, save the man, your white kids were playing, were playing dress-up with mom's makeup in their oatmeal canisters, playing, playing their tom-tom and doing war dances and war hoops, putting chicken feathers in your hair. You're, and you're going to tell me I, have, I get the right to choose whether that's offensive or not? And just because the, it's changed a little bit over the years, look, you didn't have to go very far back in history to see people in red face at Cleveland baseball games or Washington football games or Kansas City football games. They had to stop allowing people to go into Kansas City football games with headdresses on. They had, to, they had to disallow it because people can't have their own judgment. And then when you get a school board that does the right thing, who is conscientious enough to say, okay, what's all the information? What does all the information say? What do, the, what do professional psychologists say about this? What do all the nations say about this? So when you get a school board that is willing to take a stand and say, you know what, we need to get rid of this thing. What happens, they get their legs cut out of them. They, some moron gets run in the school board who's running only as a pro-mascot candidate, and next thing you know, you got, you got a bunch of knuckleheads sitting on a school board who can't even complete a, 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 speak a complete sentence. These are your school board members. Why? Because you got rid of the ones who are willing to be conscientious and look at data, look at reports, look at studies, look at evidence, and let the evidence produce an outcome, not their opinions on whether they... I just love playing Indian my whole life. So, look, I wanted to cover those three things. Obviously, the, the biggest heartbreak is uh, Seneca, uh, Seneca Nation caving into New York. We'll see how this thing plays out. I'll keep you posted. Um, look, in these battles over mascots, we're winning this thing, this one. You know, so I try to keep people aware of what, what the status is, but, but make no mistake about it. We're winning the mascot battles. And there will come a time that there will be none. There are state, Vermont and New York State both have bills um, in their, you know, going through their legislature about banning. And, and I wasn't crazy about state bans. But you know what? These bans against Native mascots are not infringing on people's First Amendment rights. People can say what they want to say. What they're doing is they're, they're, these are bills preventing discrimination. That's what they are. They, they are anti-discrimination bills. They are not anti-First Amendment bills. So uh, I'll keep you posted on that. And, um, and, and again, I'll keep you posted on what's happening with Seneca Nation. It doesn't look good, though, folks. It looks like the Seneca Nation is, is, you know, is essentially going to be the state's bitch for another however long, certainly through 2023, but we'll see how this, how this works out uh, as they go through the next, whether it's a termed compact or a perpetual compact. We'll let you know. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.